This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. This is Season 7, and every week this season, we'll bring you fresh content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations, and our main goal in everything we do, including this podcast, is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. We're featuring the Great Commandment Network today on our podcast, with content specifically designed for senior pastors. But before we get into that content, we wanted to make sure you knew about a free resource available at discipleship.org slash ebooks. It's called Evangelism or Discipleship. Subtitle is, Can They Effectively Work Together? It's by Bill Hull and Bobby Harrington, and it challenges the idea that evangelism and discipleship are separate. So check it out and download it for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Now for today's featured content. Today we're featuring an episode from Great Commandment Network and their track at the National Disciple Making Forum called Deconstructing Discipleship as We Know It. Today's episode is called Discipling Others in a Spirit-Empowered Faith, The Forgotten Purpose of Truth, featuring Bobby Harrington and David Ferguson. God, uh... I just pray that we would continue to learn, as David teaches us, how much you really love us and how much it matters to you that we know that you love us and that we be uh, a conduit to love other people. So uh, please help us uh, to learn and to um, the things that David's mm-hmm. going to share, that we, they wouldn't just be words. Mm-hmm. They would imprint our souls. In Jesus' name, mm-hmm. amen. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Bobby. Yes, um, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you and uh, talk about the issues of discipleship. Uh, again, in the broad theme, if you looked at your, uh, I guess, the stuff that's online, uh, what I'm doing is uh, deconstructing <laughs> a lot of myths about discipleship. So it's kind of like good news, bad news, so to speak. So during this session, I'll give you some maybe bad news about why discipleship's not being as effective as we want it to be, and then how do we change that, all right? So some of what our team is committed to do is to, is to work on the message that we're putting into our approach to disciple-making. And uh, so that'll be a little bit of what I'm doing. I'm going to talk a little bit about this idea of imparting a spirit-empowered faith to next generations, <clears throat> and uh, how do we go about that? Uh, why that's so imperative, how we may have missed it, okay? I mean, because if you're honest, we're not doing a good job of it. Will everybody agree? Uh, So what's going on? And uh, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, Next slide, George. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about who we are. Uh, I like to kind of communicate a little bit about some of what we do. We actually have two different entities. One's called Great Commandment Network. That's that website. I'll give you some more web addresses before we get through. That's a nonprofit group. It's called Network because we do work with about 22 different denominations. And we can do that because all we focus on is the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And uh, so we can get them, at least most of the folks we get in the room, we can get them a degree on the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. So it's a network and then parachurch ministries. And uh, we also, uh, years ago, my wife and I and our team were burdened uh, over how you go about ministry. And this is just something unique that God led us to do. And uh, I served as an executive pastor for a very large church for a few years. We had more than our share of visiting preachers, teachers, evangelists. 
And if they stayed for any length of time, sooner or later they were going to preach on Luke 6.38, you need to give and it shall be given to you. You could just count on it. It's coming, right? And I remember sitting in one of those meetings and my wife and I were impressed with this thought. That verse, to give and it shall be given to you, does not tell me to tell you to give. That was an interesting thought. That verse does not tell me to tell you to give. And so it began to kind of seed a core value that we're going to be a giving first ministry. We didn't know exactly all that meant, um, but it began to shape things. We were also impressed with a passage that Paul, share, uh, uh, Paul shares <clears throat> in a book, in his letter to Thessalonians, where he says, I did not want to be a burden to any of you. And so I came and served you willingly. And most would argue that he did what we call a tent-making ministry. Okay, So we became very impressed that we wanted to uh, creatively uh, do tent-making. So we actually have an entity called Relational Values Alliance, where we actually do real-world stuff. So we started a for-profit counseling center years ago called Center for Relational Care, 30 or something Though therapists, we've bought and sold Christian radio stations over the years. Um, we do corporate training with a group called the Center for Relational Leadership. Uh, we do everything without Bible verses in that one. <clears throat> okay. We run the premarital education program for the state of Texas. Uh, out of that, we teach uh, courses on legacy leadership at, tex- at uh, secular universities that are based on uh, relational leadership of how Jesus led. We just take the Bible verses out. Okay. Uh, we have a social-emotional learning emphasis in high schools. So it's anything kind of without Bible verses in it. But our whole team end up making a living and paying for buildings and materials and overhead out of there so that we have to do that in two weeks a month so that we are able to give two weeks a month away to the ministry. Wow. Uh, that way, if we ever get any money, we don't raise money. We never send out letters or anything or appeals. If we ever get any money, we can quickly give it away. So we've had a chance with these two-day gifted retreats that we I'll tell you a little bit about. <clears throat> uh, started those about 35 years ago. There's been 14,000 couples go through those uh, from 50 countries of the world uh, with about $12, $13 million sold into pastor health just through that one ministry. So that's a little bit of how we do what we do because one of our other core values in, just to, in addition to giving first is that we want to make an impact and not an image. And that's a battle out there today, and I'll just leave that with you. So I'm going to talk a little bit about, <clears throat> uh, you know, this idea of discipleship, kind of in the following context. I want to talk to you a little bit about the next slide, which has to do with, there's a little interesting statement, if the treatment is killing the patient, stop the treatment. Does that sound right? That good medical terminology? Well, I'd like to suggest that limiting our discipleship to a rational behavioral faith is killing the church. I became a follower of Jesus in my early 20s during the Jesus movement. And uh, we immediately started a rational faith. We started memorizing Bible verses. So you, you had, uh, you'd have a Bible verse for the day in your pocket, and you'd meet one of your discipleship folks on the campus, and you had to, you had to quote your Bible verse. If you couldn't quote the Bible verse, you had to get off the sidewalk and uh, walk on the grass. That way people would know in shame you had not done your Bible verse. 
uh, we started going down to campus on <clears throat> Friday afternoons together, and we would uh, quote large passages of Scripture. So we had to memorize the Sermon on the Mount, had to memorize the Upper Room Discourse, First uh, Peter. By that time, I'd realized you need to look ahead, see what's the easier chapters to memorize. So I was a First Peter 1 man. <laughs> I'm going to get mine done in a hurry. You ever played the hot potato game of somebody quotes John 13, you have to do 14, they do 14, you do 15, 15, 16? That's kind of the way it was. Um, started out with about 14 of us. Second year, I think there were seven. Third year, there's only three. But what happened to the three of us is we developed an attitude. Well, many are called, but only few are really chosen. You know, there's a broad road that leads to destruction. Those other 11 are on it. But there's a narrow road. That's us. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says, Knowledge will make you arrogant, but love edifies. It's interesting that the contrast between knowledge is love. And even rational knowledge of the Bible can make you arrogant. So I want to be suggesting that a rational behavioral faith, don't hear me wrong, is essential, not sufficient, to effectively make disciples. That's what I want to be arguing. Okay? It's essential, but it's not sufficient. In other words, you could memorize the books of the Bible, come up in front of the church and be able to quote 100 Bible verses, and be a lost person. Is that true? And we have some out there. And they're sitting in front of us. Is that right? That's right. So I'm going to be arguing that we need, uh, in a sense, to deconstruct the myth that a rational behavior-only faith is going to get us there. It's not going to move the needle. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, so let's do this little quick uh, thought about <clears throat> a strategic focus on discipleship. This is the classic picture of what's called mission drift. If there's any target out there... <clears throat> Uh, then this little chart sometime and all the teaching, if you read on mission drift, is how do, you, how do you miss the target? In other words, it'd be as simple as uh, how do you start off with Harvard and Yale with strong Christian heritage and you end up where they are today? Two things have happened. You've lost clarity. You've lost intentionality. How do you start about the same period of time historically with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and the YMCA. And today, University Christian Fellowship still faithfully making disciples. And the YMCA is called the what? The Y. Mission drift. Well, for our purposes, our target is the Great Commission. That's our target. We need to be about making disciples. Well, how do we, how have we drifted away from that? Well, clearly. Next slide. Clarity is lost when we measure the wrong things. Start measuring the wrong things, you will miss the target. So some of you may go to uh, denominational conventions or network conventions or whatever you want to call them. I think I went to six last summer. I need a lot of compassion for that. Just tell me. A lot of backslapping. A lot of pretending. But if you listen, you're going to hear things like, how many are you running? What you building? 
How many of you baptizing? How big's your budget? Measuring the wrong things. For six years, our team uh, trained about 400-something leaders in what's called the North Africa Middle East uh, region for Campus Crusade for Christ. 23 countries, all their national leaders. And every time you got together for six years in Antalya, Turkey, and they were in their small groups, and they were talking about the target. You never heard them once talk about numbers other than names of disciples. Mm. Who they were discipling. Who they were discipling. Who they were discipling. They weren't talking about how many you're running. How many showing up. They were talking about who I'm discipling and who those disciples are discipling. And they were talking about third and fourth generation discipleship. Okay. So clarity is lost when we measure the wrong things. And then secondly, intentionality is lost when we're distracted by good things. So if discipleship is a target, it's possible that we get distracted by everything else imaginable. Shiny objects. Man, that's the late... It could be the latest conference you go to, the latest podcast you heard, right? It can be the latest whatever some church down the street just did or just got. Distracted by good things. So just to keep it a little entertaining, I have this little uh, video of a dog show I like that uh, illustrates distraction, Okay. So this is a dog show in Norway. Uh, don't try to listen to the language unless you speak Norwegian. Um, uh, but the, the issue of the, of the dog show is the, the dog runs through a maze of distractions to their owner. And it's a timed event. Let's see how fast they can do it. Well, I think you'll agree he was a little distracted. Is that right? And here's the challenge of that. Uh, first of all, uh, that can represent the church. Right? Because every one of the things the dog was distracted by were good things. Okay, the treats are good, the dog food's good, the toys are good, tennis ball's good. Okay, that can be the church. And our main thing is making disciples. And the other sad thing is that that dog can be me. See, that's the other thing that we're going to try to focus on is to try to maintain a focus on the main thing of making disciples. Uh, next slide. Just a little quick history. After my wife and I came followers of Jesus, early 20s, uh, struggled in our own relationship, uh, tried to get a few things sorted out, um, finally got it enough together, but my wife and I started doing some marriage conferences, started uh, uh, working with other pastor couples, started doing pastor couples retreats, began to see how much pain there was in the ministry. And then uh, I went back, did some more education. Uh, First degrees in nuclear physics and then next degree in computer science. Not the most relational things on the planet. I went back and did a counseling degree and then a couple of PhDs. Trying to figure my wife out, quite frankly. <laughs> I only didn't realize it was me that needed to be figured out. But other than that, um, uh, then um, I ended up in that journey uh, having some good friends, Frank Minnerth and Paul Meyer, uh, who were part of the Minnerth Meyer clinics. They asked us, my wife and I, to start helped them start Christian psychiatric clinics in several cities, which we did. And um, our specialty for six years was working in Christian psychiatric hospitals with uh, pastor folks in crisis. So we work with pastors, pastor spouses, 
who had attempted suicide, moral and ethical failures, addictions, severe depressions, anxiety disorders, multiple personalities, all kinds of things. And it gave us a really painful look at some of the tragedy of ministry. I did two things. First of all, it shaped for us what we now call the Galatians 6-6 retreats of what can we do preventatively so that pastors don't get end up in that. That's the first thing it did. And thus, I did, my wife, we just finished uh, 50 couples in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area on Monday and Tuesday this week um, that were part of that. <clears throat> and we have a team that does those in different parts of the country and overseas. But the second thing it did for those six years, it began to challenge me uh, that <clears throat> how is it that uh, it's not getting done? How, how is it that somebody can stand behind a pulpit, do something with the Bible, and yet be doing some of those terrible things in their own personal life, some of those ethical, moral th- how is that possible? Well, we know it's sin, we know the devil's present, but what else might be missing? What else might be missing? Well, there's three things up here that we found over that six years, and I'll just highlight them for you. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> we ended up sooner or later <clears throat> asking these pastors, this will work. You might try this on your congregation, or you might try it on yourself. Since the first human crisis in the Bible is not sin, what is it? Most every one of those pastors in that psych hospital had been trained that the first and only human crisis was sin. I was trained like that. If anything's bad, wrong, it's only and always because of sin. I remember sitting in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, looking at old ancient texts, studying biblical anthropology, looking at ancient manuscript, knowing enough Hebrew to be dangerous, and I'm looking in Genesis chapter 2. And it's what we call the law of first reference. The first reference to God saying anything is not good. Several previous times says it's good, it's good, it's good. He's never said anything's not good till right now. Adam, it is not good because you're alone. That was a wake up call for me. Two things anthropologically. Adam had a perfect relationship with God, walked in the garden with God, discussed the tree of knowledge of good and evil with God. And yet apparently he had been created to need not only a relationship with God, but a relationship with other people. See, I'd been trained in a self-reliant Christianity. It says he's all you need. A lot of those ministers in that psych hospital had been trained that same way. They had, like me, sung a song. There's a half-truth in the song. Christ is all you need. Christ is all you need for redemption. Christ is all you need for salvation. (laughs) But if you want life and life abundant, He has planned intimacy for you with Him and with other people. That was a wake-up call for me. Maybe the first human Christ. You see, because sin didn't enter the world until Genesis 3. (laughs) So I remember the day in the library that the Lord said, David, your problem is bigger than you thought. (laughs) You not only have a sin problem, you have an aloneness problem. Now, what if it's true? This is what we call seeing people the way God sees them so you can love them the way God loves them. Why isn't evangelism working? Well, among other things, you just show up and say, hey, I don't know if you've ever thought of it, but you're a sinner dying going to hell. Would you like to talk? 
And we wonder why it doesn't work. <laughs> if people are both alone and fallen, which of those two can you and I do most about? Please think through this. Please. I think Jesus on the cross did everything there was to do to deal with sin. When he says it's finished, don't you think he took care of that? But what if you and I were able to so live in love that a few of the people around us were less alone? That would open the doors of the good news of Jesus. As gold. This is what's called, watch, this is called anthropology. The study of people. These pastors had a messed up anthropology. We'll never get discipleship right until you get anthropology right. Second thing we found there, I alluded to this one in the last little session I did, is that most of them have been trained in this little Zacchaeus song of hurry on down, I'm going to your house today. Anybody learn the song with a finger pointing Jesus? Come on, raise your hand. You, I figured you did. I like to say, if you, if you didn't sing the song, you didn't miss much. Uh, but if you sang it, I bet you sang it with a finger pointing Jesus. See, most of those people that were there had a Christology, that's the word, Christology of an inspecting, disappointed Jesus. Okay. Rather than, the text is very clear, he came down with gladness in his heart. Now, how did the gladness get there? Because Jesus was a finger pointing? No. Jesus was welcoming him. Most of those pastors did not have a welcoming Christology. They did not have the Luke 15, 20. He saw you a long way off and he comes running towards you with a heart of compassion to embrace you, to put a robe on you and a ring on you, to restore you. They had a Christ who comes running toward them with lectures and finger pointing. Where have you been and what have you done? So the Christology was messed up. I don't think we'll be effective in discipleship until we get our Christology right. Thirdly, <clears throat> was this one. We love to ask pastors this one. Or ask your people this one. This, this one could be convicting. What Bible verse did we experience last Sunday at church? Or which one did we do? Not just heard about it, exegeted it, looked a little at Greek and Hebrew and filled in some blanks. Did we do a Bible verse? Did we become more than a hearer of the word at church? But did we actually what? Actually do one. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the reality was they didn't have an answer to that one. That's called hermeneutic. That's actually the one I'm going to drill down a little bit more on. Is it possible that we've not only not seen Christ right, not seen people right, but we have not done everything we need to be doing with the Bible? That's the one I'm going to kind of work on for a few moments. All of this kind of work was, first of all, put in one of our books called Great Commandment Principle. And God used it in a lot of different ways to open up a lot of doors around the world. And... Uh, this little quote, we, we, I think it's got quotes from 40-something denominational leaders who we work with. This is one, one of our friends, Pastor Jack. But I want, I want you to just listen to what it says. Too long have we evangelistic-minded believers focused on being right instead of loving greatly. Being right rather than loving greatly. And then that led to uh, kind of fleshing these things that I just said out in another three books that we did. Uh, for a number of years on how do you lead like Jesus, called relational leadership. I'll allude to that one a little bit. Relational discipleship. That's a relational theology of spiritual formation. 
in essence. How does Christ really get formed in you? Is it only because of knowledge? Is it only because of memorized scripture? How does Christ get formed? We'll probably talk a little bit about that one because it's really important. I'll give you a little tease on it. <clears throat> it's based on John 12, 35, where Jesus says, you better walk in the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Just think about that analogy. It's a great analogy today. Because it's saying all you have to do, all of any of us have to do, for darkness to get you, darkness is chasing you. That's the first thought from that passage. <laughs> All you have to do for the darkness of immorality or compromise or addictions or a moral and ethical failure to get you is to stop what? Stop walking. Parents, that's what we ought to be doing, training our kids in, learn how to walk in the light. It's really kind of a cool verse that exegetes well and everything, but the key thing is uh, how do you walk in the light? So that challenges you that there's three sources of light. I'll give them to you quickly. We may have time to come back to them. But the first source of light is the person of Jesus. I am the light of the world, he says. Are we having frequent encounters with Jesus? Do you know one of the problems today is a lot of people sitting in front of you have had an encounter with Jesus, but their first encounter was their last. Hear what I just said. (laughs) See, if we're not having fresh encounters with Jesus, he is not being formed in us. Second source of light is the light of the word. Psalms 119, 105, that word is a lamp unto my feet. What? Light unto my path. That's why it's so important to be challenged with the question, what Bible verse did I do today? I have a major ministry in Cape Town, South Africa, among the townships. And these people are running around, they got almost nothing, but they got, but they got cell phones. And that whole ministry all over Cape Town and those townships is based on those young people, next generation people. At the end of the day, they are posting on social media and they're letting people know this one thought, here's the Bible verse that I did today. I spoke a gentle word to somebody who was angry with me. I spoke a word of encouragement, edification. I rejoiced with somebody that was rejoicing. I forgave someone. What Bible verse did you experience today? you got to move away from, what did you get done today? What Bible verse did you do today? And the third source of light is the light of fellowship. Matthew 5, 14, uh, you know, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. I can imagine you probably confused the disciples. Now, Lord, are you the light of the world or are we the light of the world? He says, yes. That's faithful engagement of fellowship. Why are small groups important? Why why are D groups important? (laughs) Because some of the Christ formation in you is some of the life and love that comes through other parts of the body. And so if you want to if you want to accelerate the Christ formation, we need fresh encounters with Jesus, frequent experiences of Scripture, and faithful engagement and fellowship. So all, a lot of our work is focused on uh, that approach to relational uh, discipleship. And then the last one is called Relational Foundations. That's actually a book on relational uh, theology. Its chapters are Christology, Anthropology, Hermeneutic, Ecclesiology, and Apologetic. Okay. Have we possibly missed it in all five of those because we have approached them rationally and behaviorally? So we did that, and then I'll just give you this one reference to what's called the Great Reversal. If some of you not studied that in the mid-1920s, is what's called the Great Reversal, the rise of the social gospel, liberalism. It would say there's ten ways to heaven. You can get to heaven with your, you know, meditating on your navel or worshiping doorknobs. 
and there was a pendulum swing among evangelicals. It says that's not right. We have to defend the faith. We have to defend the truth. And one of the things that happened was we moved way over here with a rational behavioral faith, and we missed continuing to experience it. So if you look historically, it's part of how we got to where we are. It was an overreaction okay, that began to abandon what we call the relational purpose of Scripture. I'll show you that in the next slide. What we've been working on is developing an age-stage model of discipleship, as was alluded to. And a part of how you do that is this beautiful verse in Matthew twenty-two forty. We're convinced that this is the key verse for uh, hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is the word for principles of exegesis. What are the principles that must guide our exegesis of Scripture? Because Jesus has just said, uh, next slide, we'll tie it to the great commandment. Uh, he's just said, the greatest is to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The greatest then, and the second is to love your neighbors, you love yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. We would say he's arguing for a relational hermeneutic. Now what that means, I'll briefly say it, is this. He's arguing for two additional questions to our traditional exegetical questions. Many of us were trained with looking at a text and we say, what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? That's somewhat somewhat familiar. Please say yes. We think he's arguing for two other questions. How does the text lead me into better loving the God who wrote the text? How does it lead me into better loving the Lord? And how might the text lead me into better loving other people? Those are relational hermeneutical questions. You stop short of that, you can't pass on the faith to the next generations. You close four to 6,000 churches in America and a bunch of other things. And so we're going to be kind of making a case for this relational hermeneutic. One way to think about that is the next slide, which is uh, the classic passage on the inspiration of Scripture. <clears throat> so one of the ways we illustrate what uh, Jesus is trying to say from Matthew twenty-two forty is this. We take the classic passage, all Scripture inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. We basically could make this little case that all Scripture is inspired for God is profitable for teaching. That's the word doctrine. So the Scripture gives us a boundary over here, that's what it's intended to say, of what we should believe. So imagine, you look at the Bible, it says this is what you ought to believe. So when the Bible says there's no other name given in heaven by which you may be saved, that's a boundary. You agree? You get on the other side of this boundary, you're in sin. Ten ways to heaven, get there worshiping doorknobs. No, that's sin. So you look at the Bible, that's a boundary. you got to keep walking inside that boundary. That's doctrine. Reproof and correction, those are two sides of the same coin. Reproof and correction tells you how to behave, how to live. In my world, this was the question Francis Schaeffer was challenging the church with. If you believe all that stuff, how shall you what? Then live, Okay. So reproof and correction, good examples, Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. That's reproof. But only such word as edifies, according to the need of the moment, gives grace. That's correction. So the Bible will reprove what's wrong. It'll tell you what's wrong. And then it will tell you what's right. Does that sound orthodox? I'm orthodox for a few more minutes. (laughs) So when the book of Galatians says the deeds of the flesh are evident, and it gives you the deeds of the flesh, it's reproving the deeds of the flesh. 
Okay. Then it says, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit is, that's correction. So imagine we have a boundary of what we would believe, a boundary of behavior, and that's just where we need to live our Christian life. But notice the rest of the verse. And for training in righteousness. The word training is from the word child or padia. Padia. The word train is literally from that word right there. You could translate it, the word of God is there to raise you or parent you in righteousness. How many of you are parents? In your parenting, you have needed to give that child boundaries. Amen? But do those boundaries raise that child? Your relationship with that child raises that child. What if we have missed this forgotten person of truth? That the Bible is there to raise us, to mature us, as we experience how the text leads us to better love God and better love other people. That's critically important. So, next slide. Uh, so what that means is, when we start talking about a spirit-empowered faith, we would basically be arguing that a spirit-empowered discipleship outcome. We know who would we, we started doing work twelve years ago on a global council on discipleship involves folks from uh, <clears throat> all continents, but Antarctica. There's about forty folks been working on this for twelve, thirteen years on what are some Bible-based outcomes for a spirit-empowered disciple. So one of them would be that a spirit-empowered disciple listens to and hears God. Now think about that. Is that relational? Please say yes. yes. And it's impossible to do apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Right? Yes. That is an effective discipleship outcome. It must be relational, impossible to do apart from the Holy Spirit. So if we memorize the books of the Bible, excellent, sufficient, we need to do it. 103 Bible verses, memorize them, yes. But you can do that outside of relationship, and you don't have the Holy Spirit. You don't have to have the Holy Spirit. So this becomes a, a good marker for us. Let me, I think I've got time to do this, let me tell you. Let me tell you how we have come to realize when you're moving the needle on relational, making relational disciples. Uh, let's suppose we have a little preschool or five or six-year-old Jane or Johnny that come into Sunday school. And uh, we're going to be teaching them a letter, lesson on uh, love one another as he has loved you. That's the lesson. They come, they got this one little uh, activity center, and here they got a crayon, a little piece of paper, and they're going to draw a picture of their family. So just imagine five or six year old, draw a picture of your family. It's got little stick figures. We got moms and dads, and we got parents and grandparents. We got step parents. We got probably got a dog, a cat, right? This is my family. Over here is another activity center. This is called the temple. This curriculum is called Temple Time. So they go in the temple, this is just a set of curtains right here, because they're going to go in there one at a time. They take their shoes off before they go in there, because when they go in there, they're going to pray young Samuel's prayer, speak to me, Lord, I'm listening. That's what you do in here. They take off the shoes, they take their picture, their little picture and their color, they go in here, and they ask this question, Lord, while I'm in here, I want to quiet my heart, and I want to listen to who on here would you want me to better love? Now, do you think a five or six year old could possibly hear God? You think God would want them to hear it? And they circle that person and they come out of there 
You know, we're here at this activity center. Now we work on, how could I better love that person? How could I better love that brother? How could I better love that stepfather? How could I better love them? Now watch. Here's when you know you're moving the needle. I've been so excited to see this happening in hundreds and hundreds of churches. When the parents show up to get little Jane or Johnny, they ask the two rational behavioral questions. What did you learn today? And what? What did you do today? And Jane or Johnny answers it like this. I heard God tell me to love my little brother. Mm. Now that's when you know you're moving the needle. And you can pass on the faith to the next generation. That's the only hope you got, folks. If we don't get to that, there is no hope. It's, rash, it's relational, impossible to do apart from the Holy Spirit. And so uh, what we've been working on for a number of years is <clears throat> kind of what does that look like? Next slide. So let's do this real quickly. Uh, you've been sitting a while. We've got a few minutes to go. So I want you to do something for me. There are two little interesting verses. We've actually put uh, spirit-empowered outcomes to these, what we call 40 outcomes. P means people, loving people. W means li- living the word. Uh, but a couple of outcomes would be startling people with loving initiative, give first. We give first because he went about doing good. We give first because we have a giving first God. Secondly, another aspect of a spirit-empowered disciple is that we actually are being a living epistle as we actually become the Word of God. We actually live the Word of God. So we do Bible verses. So here's what I want you to do. You're going to stand up and with one other person. See if you can do it in twos. This will be awesome. It'll be awesome to do. I'm going to have you stand up. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to think about a positive, fun memory from your growing up years. Okay? So I want a, you know, I want a favorite... Uh, Holiday, I want a favorite birthday, you know, I want a favorite uh, memory you had of a trip with your grandparent, you know, home run, got elected to some school office. I remember first fish I caught with my granddad. I remember my father finding this little abandoned puppy, uh, cocker spaniel puppy when I was about four, bring him home. Memory from your growing up years, positive, fun memory. You got that? If you can do it after, uh, you know, when you're 12, 13 and under, it'd be better because that'll help you, all right? If all you remember is, I remember passing algebra, that's okay, or I remember, you know, whatever, but I want a positive, fun memory. I want you to share that that one other person, and what the other person is going to do is they're going to rejoice with you. That's what they're going to do. Rejoice with those who what? And as they do so, they're also going to be thinking more highly of you than they do themselves. They're going to give you attention. They're going to give you eye contact. They're not going to be looking at their cell phone while you're talking to them. We're just going to stand up. You're going to share. Your partner's going to rejoice, and then you're going to share, and they're going to rejoice with you. You kind of got it? Now, since we only have one two ladies in the room, I have to help the rest of us. What does rejoicing sound like? Okay. It does not sound like, is that all? Or is it my turn now? Okay. Or the reason I think that happened was because... Rejoice is, I'm excited that happened. That sounded like fun. I'm glad you got to do that. It does not come out of your head. Rejoicing comes out of your heart, right? I'm excited you got to do that. That sounds like fun, right? All right, stand up. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Find your partner. Celebrate with them. All right, after you've shared, you can have a seat, but be sure you both share. I want to reflect just a little bit on that in a couple ways. First of all, you actually, you actually could do that in your church service. 
Don't, don't miss that. Okay? That simple exercise. I mean, do some of you pastors ever look out there and say, where is the joy of the Lord? Yes. <laughs> did you know the whole countenance of the room changes? The energy of the room changes, just what we did. Amen? Yes. After you do something like that, then you reflect to your people. Don't miss this. Is what must that have done to the heart of God? who looks down and he has written the book, preserved the book, protected his book, and his people are doing the book. One of the ways you love the Lord is to do his book. It's one of the ways you love the Lord. Do his book. Okay. Now, we train pastors all the time. You need to do that every Sunday. There needs to be a Bible verse. People go away and said, we did that one. We either did it vertically with God... Or we did it horizontally with one another. Either vertically with God or horizontally with one another. That's what Matthew twenty two forty is arguing for. Okay? I think we'll give you a website at the end of this where we have a, a bunch of sermons that you can actually download free and it'll kind of equip you how to do this. Okay? It's a new hermeneutic, but we're convinced. I mean, this is what this is what Leonard Sweet called epic. If you're gonna reach the next generation, it's gotta be experiential, participatory, image driven, and community focused. Experiential. Do we not live in an experiential culture? Yeah. Some of you got kids, grandkids. Experiential, okay? And we ought to be a people that says we do experience. We do that, okay? We do his book. Amen? All right, so let me give you a couple thoughts. Where that leads you to, next line, is it begins to lead you to then how can you put together a, uh, a spirit-empowered outcome for discipleship? Well, I'll, I'll say this, and, uh, and then I'll work on it. Uh, if you have to develop a, if you have to develop a system, a plan, a definition, you have to defend it. But if you discern it from Scripture, it defends itself. So just think about that, and I'm going to leave that alone because we spend way too much time developing stuff rather than discerning. I'm not going to go there, but I'll, that's one of the ways we get distracted. I think I'll develop something new. Well, how much new under the sun is there? I'm going to leave that alone. Uh, so one of the things that helped us was we took this one Bible verse, Ephesians 4.12, that he appointed some of his apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, for the equipping of what? Saints. Saints Jesus followers. Is that right? Mm-hmm. For works of what? Ministry, Ministry of service. Similar words. What we did, that word is diakadia. We took the three Greek words that are translated that in the New Testament, that are translated minister or serve. We took two Hebrew words out of the Old Testament that are always translated minister or serve. It's 245 references. And then we did what's called a cluster analysis. You cluster them into groups that relate to which direction am I to be serving. That's the best way to say it. Next slide. So first of all, there's a group of them that, that cluster around serving or ministering to the Lord. Remember Psalms 100 verse 3, I said, serve the Lord with gladness. That's one of the Hebrew words. Here's one of the Greek words. The saints at Ephesus were ministering unto the Lord. Does that sound vertical? Please say yes. So there's a cluster of them that talk about how we need to equip saints to learn how to minister to the Lord. 1 Samuel 3, 7, 8. Speak, Lord, you're what? Servant is listening. 
Secondly, there's a cluster of them that cluster around serving the Word. Acts 6.4, we've just had servants who serve platters of food. Right? And now the apostles say, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the what? The serving of the Word. If there's one thing, I don't have time to go there, that we need to get back in the pulpits of our land is to serve the Word. Not beat up people with the Word. Serve people the Word. It takes humility. takes vulnerability. It takes a heart of getting down on your knees just like you would to wash somebody's feet. And you wash them with the water of the Word. So there is a cluster of serving the Word. Thirdly, there's a cluster around don't let your freedom become an occasion for sin, but in your freedom, serve one another in love. A horizontal component of we need to be serving people, His love. We need to be ministering to people. So we minister to the Lord, administer His Word, minister to people. And then there's a fourth one that is all missional. We are going to be serving the ministry of reconciliation. We're going to be serving people the gospel. We're going to be serving people the opportunity to be reconciled unto God. So those are the four clusters of about 245 verses. So then you basically take outcomes based on those and begin to develop. Uh, we have 10, basically, outcomes in each of those. So there's a 40-outcome inventory. So that's basically what we've been doing. And then you put those across at what's called an age-stage model, which is how are those developed. Well, those are developed, if you want to do a little research, uh, second century church, Hippolytus, Bishop of Rome, not to be confused with Hippopotamus, uh, fourth generation, disciple of Jesus. Jesus, John, Polycarp, Arrhenius, Hippolytus. said, if we're going to take these few hundred thousand and see millions, we need to realize that they start over here exploring these truths. Then they need to come to personally embrace them. This is mine. I embrace it. This is not my family's faith. This is not my parents' faith. I am embracing that. Then, here's where where discipleship breaks down in most contexts, is those very truths are going to be experienced in my life Monday through Friday. This is what the Willow Creek Reveal Study would have said. That's where discipleship breaks down. We got our churches filled with people who embrace these things. Jesus is the only way. You know, I believe the Bible. (laughs) But when it comes to Monday through Friday, how's it affecting your life? Basically is, I just show back next, next Sunday and reaffirm I embrace those. <laughs> okay, So we've got to get this experience as a lifestyle. And then ultimately our goal is that is my identity. So over here, I just don't do listening to and hearing God. I am a person who hears God. I'm a person who listens to God. That's who I am. So that becomes our goal. And so we work on how does that take place. If you look at it in a local church, real quickly, this ought to be preschool ministry. This ought to be children's ministry. So by the time that child, 12, 13 years old, they've embraced this stuff. It's not their parents' face, it's their stuff. This ought to be middle school, high school. They're actually practicing it Monday through Friday. And this ought to be young adulthood. They are that person. Okay, That ought to begin to shape how we do Uh, age-graded ministry. So what we've ended up doing then is we take that and uh, we produce this Spirit-Empowered Faith outcome. We've given you a copy of that. Uh, It has a code on there uh, for pastors to use. The church can have it free. 
what you end up doing is you send this uh, link out to your church. They take 40 questions, take about 15 minutes. Uh, they can they can uh, download their own report if they want to, but the but the compilation comes back to you as a pastor. Okay, so you get a picture of where your people are saying they're strong, they're strong, they have strengths, and where their growth areas are. Now let me pause real quickly. This is a game changer. If I were to ask you, how do you plan your sermons? We might not be excited about your answer. How do you plan your sermon series? Well, I had a podcast, or I had a friend preach on this, or whatever. What if we were planning our sermons, planning our small groups, planning our elective based on where our people say they need to be discipled? Would that not be a game changer? That's kind of what this is. And so you end up with an individual report, a group assessment report, and then we'll give you a few of the pages so you know kind of what it looks like. Uh, So that you're able to look at overall strengths, growth areas, even demographic breakdown. Let's just flip through these real quickly, George. So, for example, you'll end up with the same stage that says, my people, this is a composite of like 87 people from this congregation, they have these strengths over here, and they have these growth areas right here. And there's someone in the middle right here. Now, next slide, and I'll show you kind of what those mean. We end up saying, okay, now let's drill down on those. And you can look at them across uh, male and female. It's very interesting to see how honest females are. It's interesting. Just quite a difference. And then you can do it by age, and you can also do it by spiritual age. Next slide. All right, so you understand, here's our two strengths. Our two strengths in this congregation are champion Jesus as the only hope of eternal life and abundant living. they got a bunch of people who say Jesus is the only way. That's a strength. All right, they got a they got a strength in entering off into spirit led praise and worship. Okay, that's a strength. Very important to understand that. That's how you learn how to missionally engage your church. Okay, uh, but then growth areas: consistent practice of self denial, fasting, and solitude rest. That's a growth area. Okay, we would say probably not out of resistance, but out of inadequacy. They've not had experiences of solemn assembly. They don't have experience of seasons of prayer and fasting. Okay, And so we begin to design ministry based on where the growth areas are. Or meditating consistently on more and more of the word hidden in the heart. So it's, that one's very intentionally designed to say it's not a matter of you memorized those verses 30 years ago and you haven't memorized another one since. That's why it's worded the way it is. <laughs> so that we must be continually growing. And so we begin to say, what does that look like? you know, in our worship services to be able to move the needle on that or small groups or whatever. Uh, so you end up in the report, end up with not only strengths, but you end up with recommendations. How can, we rec- how can we tap into our strengths? Your strengths would be, when you have people who strength, they ought to be mentoring or discipling younger believers in their strengths, right? So your strengths tell you where your discipleship strengths are also. Next. And then your growth areas are going to actually help you with uh, not only uh, how do we grow in those areas. So we end up with resources. Uh, we have experientials. The pastor's kit has 12 sermons in it to introduce all of these spirit-empowered faith outcomes to your congregation. So that's a little bit of what that is. Uh, how do you move the needle between those four groups? This is the last thing I'll say about theology, and then I'll close with one personal story. How do you move the needle from explore to embrace to express to uh, experience to express. The way you move the needle is with fresh encounters with Jesus. How did God move the needle for me 
in my own prayer life, it was an encounter with Jesus where the red letters, can you not pray with me just one hour, touched me. And it moved me out of embracing that prayer was a good thing to actually experiencing it as a lifestyle. It takes an encounter with Jesus. It takes an experience of Scripture, a practice of Scripture. What Bible verse am I practicing this week? Okay? At being, giving gentle words to airline people who are jerks. I'm in five cities this week. Trust me, I've had a lot of gentleness practice. What Bible verses am I experiencing? And then thirdly, what experiences of engagement of fellowship? What am I seeing in the lives of people that's not true of me? That's how you begin to move that needle across the page. Now I'll close with this example. And uh, we'll pray and be gone. Uh, the, the example I'll give you for me is with no doubt that uh, in, my, in my personal journey, I had two significant growth areas. One was to be more attentive to the relational needs of my wife. I was one of those, very rational, come home, she's disappointed, hurting about something, slamming cabinet doors. And I say something like, what's wrong with you now? What's wrong with you this time? You think that helps? We have a couple ladies in here. Probably not. Or I give her advice. Well, maybe next time if you'll handle it like this, that won't happen. Okay. Totally clueless as to how to do that. The second thing was, again, my prayer and devotional life was a duty. It was an obligation. It was a box to be checked. And in closing, I had an encounter with Jesus in Luke chapter 17. Story of the ten lepers. Massey, have mercy on us. Show yourselves a priest. As they went, they were what? They were healed. But then the text says, but one of them. One of them apparently could not take another step away from Jesus, turned around, came back, fell on his feet, and gave him thanks. And I want you to listen to these words. And I'm going to pray we'll be done. Because this was a transformative moment. When I'm looking at red letters, and it says, were there not ten, where are the other nine? That's not a rhetorical question. Does anybody know where the other nine are? He knew exactly where they are. What his heart is saying is, why are they what? Why are they not here? This is a man acquainted with sorrows and grief. That morning, that hit my heart. Tears came in my eyes. It scared me. Why am I crying? And then the question, who am I crying for? And the answer is clear. I'm crying for Jesus. Been in ministry 21 years at the time. Never happened before. Did a master's thesis on Philippians 2. I want to know the power of resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And 11 years after that, I'm fellowshipping finally with the sufferings of Jesus. It did two transformative things. Number one, it sent me home to be compassionate toward my wife. The more I could hurt for Jesus, don't miss this, the more I had compassion for him, I had compassion for her. Two weeks later, slamming cabinet doors, my son's done something jerky again. She's upset, and I remember saying to her, Honey, I can really see that you're hurting. And whatever's going on, I want you to know I care. And I hugged her, and she got better. And I remember thinking, You ought to write that down, boy. You've been, <laughs> you've been looking for that sentence for a long time. What happened was 
I had a transformative encounter with Jesus. It was helping me better love my wife. The second thing it did is translated my and deepened my relationship with Him. Because for these now last 27 years, most mornings I start meditating on, on my knees, imagining I'm beside that leper. And we're going to give Him thanks. Because I never want Him to say, Where's David? Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, thank you for the privilege of knowing you, being loved by you, and because we've been loved by you, have the privilege to love you back. Teach us of that. Continue to call these who are so faithful in the discipleship to live it out fully with you, with those nearest them, and then missionally to all you have called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you. Good to be with you. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast by discipleship.org. Make sure to check out that ebook we mentioned at the beginning of this episode. When you go to discipleship.org slash ebooks, search for evangelism and discipleship. Until next time, may the Lord bless you as you seek to follow Jesus into the Great Commission without neglecting the Great Commandment.